Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is guitar virtuoso Lawrence Juber. First of all, the Blurred Lines lawsuit is finally over. If you remember back five years, Robin Thicke had a big hit called Blurred Lines that he wrote with Pharrell Williams. In 2015, both Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams were sued by the estate of Marvin Gaye, and they claimed that the song Gotta Give It Up was copied. And when they took it to court, what they found was the vibe was copied, not so much the melody and certainly not the lyrics, yet the jury came back and held for the Marvin Gaye estate. So this sent a ripple through the publishing industry and was like, well, wait a second, if you can copyright a vibe, so to speak, then we're all in real trouble. Well, what ended up happening was that judgment was appealed, and it turns out that the appeals court also upheld that, in fact, there was a copyright infringement with blurred lines. Now, the next step would be to go to the Supreme Court. The only problem was they missed the deadline to file. So this case is over. And what had to happen was both Thick and Williams had to pay the Marvin Gaye estate $5 million plus 50% of the future earnings from blurred lines. That ends up not being all that much as compared to what was originally asked for, which is many, many more millions. But what ends up happening here is that Songwriters everywhere are really affected. Now, if you look at any hit today, you'll find that there are a lot of writers. Where once upon a time, there were only one or two. Now you might find 10 or 12. Part of this has to do with this particular judgment. And the reason why is anybody that has anything even remotely to do with the song is now given credit. If you're in the room and the song's being written, you get a credit. If there's a song that's kind of remotely like it that you wrote, you'll probably get a credit. And the reason why is nobody wants a lawsuit. So now this is making publishing a lot more difficult than it's ever been before. But it looks like we're stuck with it for a while. So now not only can you not copy the melody or the lyrics, but you can't copy the vibe either. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, I get asked a lot of questions about acoustics. So I thought I'd bring this up. I live in the flight path of Burbank Airport. And until a couple of years ago, it wasn't too much of a problem because the planes took off occasionally over my house, but not that often. And then they changed all the flight paths. And now I find that planes are flying over quite a lot. So much so that when I do things like this, I have to stop a lot when a plane flies over for a couple of minutes. So I decided to take my own advice and seal up my windows, which we just did. And what this entails is a quarter inch piece of plexiglass. I went to a plexiglass manufacturer and bought it. And then you place that over the inside of the windowsill on top of a piece of weather stripping. 
Now you screw this into the wood of the windowsill and it makes a nice tight seal. You have to be careful when you actually make the holes in the plexiglass though that you drill nice and slow so you don't crack anything and use a very sharp bit. But in fact, this made a really big difference. And I don't know if you noticed, but a plane just flew over and you probably didn't hear it. I did a little bit, but ordinarily I would have had to stop completely. That's not the case anymore. I also want to encourage people that haven't done anything with their home studios to actually do so because it doesn't take a lot of money in order to make a big improvement. So for instance, I think it was about $150 or so, $160 for these two pieces of plexiglass that went over the two windows. But for about another $150, you can make some nice sound panels that will absorb the reflections. And you put those around your listening area and over the top to make what's called a reflection-free zone. Then you can either put a couple more panels behind you or all you need is a nice bookshelf in the back. Just any kind of bookshelf with books and various things. It doesn't have to be filled with books. And all of a sudden, your acoustic environment has improved a whole lot. So it doesn't take much to actually do this. It doesn't take a lot of money. There's kits that you can buy online that will help you do this. They're more expensive, but you can do it yourself if you feel like swinging a hammer. But I encourage you to actually look at your listening area Listen to your listening area and see if you can improve it because it doesn't take that much to improve it a whole lot. My guest today is Lawrence Juber, who's been acclaimed as one of the world's most remarkable acoustic guitar players. Lawrence has a big history on both electric and acoustic guitars, actually, starting as a busy session player in his hometown of London before joining Paul McCartney's Wings. After the band folded, he resumed his session career first in New York City, then in Los Angeles. He's not only a two-time Grammy winner, but has been featured on hundreds of television shows and movies, and has composed a soundtrack for the award-winning video game Diablo 3 and Ken Burns' The Tenth Inning documentary. In the interview, we talked about becoming a studio musician in London, playing with Paul McCartney, getting into film composing, the beauty of different guitar tunings, and his signature guitar. Lawrence also has one of the best George Harrison stories that you'll ever hear. We spoke via Skype from his home in Los Angeles. Where are you from in the UK? London. Oh, okay. Yeah, I grew up in London, in the East End, which technically makes me a Cockney, um, but grew up in, in suburban North North London, N-O-R-F, North. <laughs> Got it, yeah, um, right. You know, I, I mean, I started playing guitar in November of 63, when I was 11. So it's actually coming up now 55 years and i just never put it down was it a reaction to the beatles uh that was part of it although my initial motivation was really more the shadows uh-huh. hank marvin and um you know apache and the, the shadows were like the english version of the ventures yeah all the twangy guitar music they would have played surf music but we didn't have any surf yeah <laughs> Nonetheless, it was, um, you know, there was that. The Beatles were a big part of it because 1963 was that whole arc of Beatlemania just kind of, you know, really like growing and growing. Um, And I'd been nagging my parents for a guitar for a while, and I got one for my 11th birthday, uh, which coincided with 
the really the crest of Beatlemania um, for that year. And it was, the, there was certainly an influence, but a, no means the only influence. I mean, the Rolling Stones, the Animals, not so much the Dave Clark Five, but, <laughs> you know, and then it just kept going. I mean, you had the Kinks and, you know, sure. a little later Feb mm-hmm. Convention, and um, it was just, there was an explosion of music, and it was all so readily available, too. Okay, but that being said, you're talking about electric guitar-oriented pop groups, and yet you studied classical guitar. Well, see, there were parallel tracks going on. 1963 was also the year of, of folk protest song. Mm-hmm. You know, so Bob Dylan, Joan Baez. A little bit later, the English uh, folk Baroque players like uh, Bert Yance, John Remborn, um, and then Paul Simon. You know, it, it was that was going on at the same time for me. I mean, my first instrument was an acoustic guitar, not electric. Um, I, my second guitar was an arch top, which I then got a Bill Lawrence pickup for and a Selma little giant amplifier. And it was, you know, it was kind of, there was a progression that was going on, but I studied classical guitar because I had to, Uh. because I wanted to study music. And in order to, to study like a level music, I needed to get grade six classical guitar or any instrument, but, you know, that was the obvious one. And they, they started offering classical guitar lessons in my high school. So I just leapt at that. And then later I, and then I kept going with it because I wanted to study music in college. So I had to go kind of up to grade eight for that. Um, but it, it came very naturally because I could already read music. Um, but I wasn't, exactly enamored of the the classical guitar repertoire because my passion was you know for learning eric clapton solos for learning django reinhardt barney castle you know uh learning finger picking guitar pieces but there was a natural affinity between kind of finger style guitar and what we call classical guitar so it all kind of fit together and i uh, I ended up, by the time I got to college, I had a Renaissance lute. I was playing Elizabethan lute music. I was, you know, just, and that kind of fit in. I mean, it's funny because they call that English school the folk Baroque because it kind of like has a ring to it. But in reality, I mean, John Remborn really was playing more Renaissance and even medieval music than the you know, Baroque, the kind of the high Baroque of Bach is a there's a lot more counterpoint going on. It's a different, it's a different level of musical composition. Um, but what appealed to me, and, and you know, not just me, I mean, it was part of the fabric of English music at that period, that the, the folk Renaissance elements were in there, you know, whether it was the incredible string band or, you know, the, um, the aspects of Led Zeppelin that really drew from from a more English folk tradition, you know, like, um, in fact, you know, Kashmir, for example, is in Dad Gad tuning, which was developed by Davy Graham so that he could jam with Middle Eastern musicians because it's a drone tuning if you use it in a particular way. And, and Jimmy Page adapted that, um, although he had, you know, I mean, he'd started using it 
white summer, black mountainside, which you know, was nothing more than an adaptation of of black waterside, which was a, um, a more traditional English song. The so that kind of fingerstyle sensibility was kind of built in, even with the Beatles. I mean, you know, Dear Prudence and the that kind of texture that, that was in the Beatle records too, you know, that kind of arpeggiated acoustics thing. So <clears throat> those influences were all in there. I mean, I was a big Fairport Convention fan early on. You know, I used to love seeing Richard Thompson, you know, playing a, a Les Paul Goldtop with P90 pickups. And that, you know, the, the, the barriers, the stylistic barriers were less defined in England compared with America. You know, there was a lot more cross. That explains a lot because I guess you got labeled as a classical musician now, and, and that's not really the case. You're a fingerstyle musician. Well, but here's, here's the thing with that. I mean, my new album, Touchstones, is classical in only the broadest sense that the repertoire in it is defined in the classical music world. Um, but you know, I've got stuff going back to the Renaissance with that, which I don't consider classical in the, in, in that sense. It's, it's simply fingerstyle music of that era. Yeah. And much in the same way as the, like Giuliani or saw the, the quote, you know, the founding fathers of classical guitar were only fingerstyle players in their time. They were contemporary composer players, you know, saw wrote operas, he wrote, he wrote ballets. He he did you know he had a very broad musical career as a composer. Guitar wasn't his sole focus. Whereas Giuliani was primarily a guitarist, although apparently he played cello for the premiere of one of Beethoven's symphonies. But that's that's another issue. Um, but I'm I'm really I mean I'm classified as a fingerstyle guitar player, and for me fingerstyle encompasses all of that. The one thing I don't really subscribe to is the kind of the post-Segovia Spanish classical paradigm, because it's not the way I play. I don't play on nylon strings. I don't use fingernails. If I am playing a nylon string, I'll probably be using a pick because that's a particular kind of Hollywood studio sound. Yeah. But, you know, that's why the Touchstones album, it's, it's all done on steel strings. Two-thirds of the album is on an 1893 Martin Parlor guitar. And sonically, that's where my ear kind of sits. But it's not by any means. I mean, there are people who classify me as a jazz guitar player or a rock guitar player. I'm none of those. I'm simply a musician who plays guitar. And I, I don't subscribe to being in one genre or another. The one thing I've noticed, though, is you have a particular aggression when you play that feels like it comes from playing electric that you bring over to the to acoustic with your fingerstyle. I, I think you're right there. I think there is a crossover, but the sensibility of playing electric guitar. It's not so much a technical thing because technique-wise, there's a, there's not a lot to choose between acoustic and electric, except I use slightly heavier strings on acoustic. And obviously there's a lot more there's a lot more bending and you know that just the bluesy kind of rock lead style. But the but certainly there's something about playing that kind of bluesy lead guitar that certainly, you know, is in there in the acoustic play. So it's 
it's not um, I'm not a pure acoustic player. I'm just a musician. Yeah. You know, and and the music translating that music through the guitar is is my goal, which is why I use altered tunings, why I, I bring some of that electric sensibility into it. Because partially it's the repertoire. You know, if I'm playing a Beatle tune, if I'm playing I Saw Her Standing There or, you know, Ticket to Ride or something, I'm going to play with a different attitude to playing Bach. Yeah, yeah. You know, even though I think Bach should swing. Mm-hmm. You know, that 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 we don't know because we don't have recordings from those older the, those older periods. But we certainly know in France, for example, they had this concept of notes inégal, unequal notes, where the performance would not be the way it's written on the page, but it would have some kind of swing to it. Much like you know, when you write for jazz musicians, you don't write out all the triplets. Yeah, you, yeah. It's understood, convention. Or what you see in the studio, when you get a chart in the studio, much the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, it's, it, and it's, it's just music, and it's how you articulate the music, what the stylistic context is, what the emotional counterpoint of it is, how it all fits together. And, you know, I'm, I mean, some of my more successful tracks in, in the streaming media tend to be the more romantic things. Mm. Just that's kind of the nature of that particular medium. But in concert, I mean, I just cover the complete gamut, you know, whether it's a jazz-driven tune or a Beatle cover or Hendrix or a standard or something, you know, original that goes off in a completely different kind of direction. You know, it's all storytelling, ultimately. How did you get into studio work in London? That was my ambition as a teenager. When I realized that, you know, you could make a living as a professional guitar player being a studio musician, that was like, that's what I want to do. And I worked at that to the point where I was starting to play on demo sessions and I was in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, which was kind of a farm team for studio work. And we did a a concert that was broadcast on the BBC and the next day, I got a phone call from a, a contractor. In England, we call them fixers. And I got a phone call from a guy named David Katz, who said, I want to start you on sessions. And he gave me two, two dates. And I said, sorry, I can't do them. Those are my final exams. I was at <laughs> London University doing a degree, a degree in music. And I didn't think I'd hear from him again. And then a week later, he called back and said, OK, here's more dates. Um, and it just snowballed from there. So I then got into this kind of very intense three-year period where I was doing, you know, many weeks. I was doing working seven days a week, doing three, sometimes four sessions a day. Um, and this was mid-70s when that studio scene had already kind of was in something of a recession as far as, you know, during the 70s, it really dropped off from the way it was in the 60s. And, of course, by the end of the decade, drum machines are coming in, you know, you start, and then I was realized when, you know, that was really being a studio player was what got me into wings. But when wings folded, I looked at the studio world said, you know, I've, I've got more opportunities in America than I do in London. And that was when I made the move over to the States. Well, how did the entrance into wings happen? Did you do a session with Paul McCartney that brought you into it? 
I was playing in the house band on a TV show with David Essex. David Essex being a big pop star in England at the time. His musical director is a wonderful arranger named Richard Niles, who I used to do a lot of work with. And Richard went on in the 80s, he worked with Trevor Horn a lot. He did the, the arrangement for Slave to the Rhythm, Swing Out Sister. He did a lot, lot of stuff and also had a, a big band called Banzilla, which he, he writes the kind of big band charts that can strip paint. It's really like cutting edge, kind of like the Brecker brothers on steroids kinds of, wow. kinds of really very cool, very hip kind of Berkeley school of music type stuff. Yeah. Um, but we did, we did a lot of work together and he was the musical director for this David Essex show. And I was playing lead guitar in the house band and, De and Denny Lane was a guest on the show and we did go now. And I had a guitar solo to play and Denny liked the way that I played and uh, Richard said he called a few days later and said, hey, is he versatile? Because apparently, you know, Paul was looking for, for somebody with more versatility than Jimmy McCulloch. Because Jimmy was a great rock guitar player, but he didn't do everything. Yeah. And but but it didn't happen overnight. I mean, that was in September of 77. Uh, a few months later, I ran into Danny with Paul and Linda at Air Studios in London and got introduced but I didn't get the phone call until April of 78. And I was working at Abbey Road in Studio Two of all places. And I never had a phone call, you know, of course there were no cell phones in those days, but nobody ever would call me at a studio unless it was something really dramatic, which a week before, a month before that it had been because my father passed away. And I, I had to actually, for the first time ever, and only time I had to leave the session, um, but I couldn't not. But in April, I was working at Abbey Road, got this phone call. Denny wants to know if you can come and jam on Monday. And oh, by the way, Paul and Linda will be there. It wasn't proposed to me as an audition, but clearly that's, you know, that's what it was. So, and I, I didn't really know any Wings tunes. So I borrowed some LPs from my brother, realized that it's just, who knew, you know, it's like, I, so I just went in and we played some Chuck Berry tunes and reggae grooves and they offered me the gig. I think I fit the suit. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that must have been a shock then, a career shock, because here you are in the insular studio world, and then all of a sudden you're out with wings. And not only that, it's not being out with the big act, it's being out with one of the biggest acts ever. But we didn't go straight on the road. Ah. It wasn't like it was. I was hired to be the touring guitar player. I was hired because Paul was making a new album. He had a new record label. He signed with Columbia Records, and he wanted a complete band. So the first thing that happened was we went in the studio. And actually, the very first session was for a song called Same Time Next Year, which was a demo that he did for the movie. Um, Marvin Hamlish ended up doing the score. But Paul had written this really cool big ballad, and we did a demo, like we did a track, and then they overdubbed a 60-piece string orchestra on it. I'd never played on such a well-produced demo before um and it, it actually ended up being released about a decade decade later and that was kind of my intro to it and then we spent some time up in scotland just working on some material and just getting to know each other and then went back to scotland in july of 78 and started recording back to the egg and the first few tracks that we recorded were so completely different from this big kind of movie ballad that we had done. They were very raw, you know, 
spin it on to you, old Siamsa, the back to the egg tracks that were really kind of the more muscular kind of rock, uh, even in spin it on kind of punk rockabilly um, kind of stylings. And um, then it gradually kind of, the album kind of evolved and brought out, you know, the more ballad folky side too. But that was the process. And we didn't, and we worked on that album from July of 78 through, through I think like April of 79. And then it came out in June. So there was that period. And then we didn't tour immediately. I mean, we didn't really tour until later on in 79. So I've been in the band for over a year before we actually you know, went out on the road. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it was much more the experience. So it was not a great shock going from being a studio musician to being in the studio with Paul McCartney for a length of time. Yeah. Other than the fact that we have more time to work on tunes, you know, instead of doing one tune per hour, it would be like one tune per day or two. Yeah, right, 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 right. Well, okay, so then Wings ends and you decide to move to Los Angeles and get into the studio scene there. I'm curious, did you have a hard time breaking in? Because again, that could be fairly insular and back then, you know, people kept their clients close. Well, a, a few things. First of all, wings folded. That's the official term for when wings broke up, they folded. Um, I didn't move straight to LA. I moved to New York. And I already had connections in New York. And as soon as the word got out that I was there, I was getting booked on sessions almost immediately. A lot of jingle sessions, but a few record things, but jingles. And I was working on a project that was being managed by Rick Newman, who owned a comedy club, Catch a Rising Star. So I spent a lot of time there watching comedians. Um, once in a while, I get up and like with my guitar and play and something and um, maybe and sing a bit because I was writing songs, you know, prompt and kind of inspired by Paul. I was really trying to get into the songwriting thing. It took me some time subsequent to that to realize that right, my real strengths were as a musician, uh, composer, arranger, producer, rather than being a lyricist. It just didn't suit the way that I, I, I'm good at fixing lyrics, but not good at initiating lyrics. That's what my wife Hope is for. That's her thing is for more, a lot more than that, but yeah, in yeah. terms of the creative. Um, so I was in New York, I met Hope there and she was from LA. I'm busy working on projects and doing sessions, but I'm also in this transcontinental relationship. And I just found LA was more conducive to what I was looking for in terms of a, a living environment. And then we got engaged and started raising a family. Her dad, Hope's dad, uh, was Sherwood Schwartz, TV producer. Oh, yeah, okay. Created Gilligan's Island, Brady Bunch, and other TV shows. And so he had some connections with kind of the older composers. <laughs> that got me in the door of some scoring sessions. Um, but I also got introduced, for example, to Michael Lloyd, who's an old school Hollywood record producer. Sure. And I still do sessions with Michael. But you know, I got into doing sessions with him. Uh, I got introduced to a TV composer named Dan Follier, and I ended up 30 years of sessions with him, including... Home Improvement, Roseanne, Seventh Heaven, you know, long running TV shows. So between the record stuff and, and the TV and movie stuff, you know, I, I played on a bunch of movie scores too. And then I started getting into composing for myself. So I'm production, 
eventually I ended up producing four albums for Al Stewart, for example, mm. as well as many other projects. I've written stage musicals. I've scored pictures. It's like just, you know, living in L.A., it's like, can you do this? Oh, sure. You know, even if you've never done it before. Yeah. You have a Halloween song? Yeah, you bet. And then you write one, you know. Yeah. It's the nature of it. And, and because Hope came from this comedy writing background, it was very natural that she and I would work together on, on comedic stuff, too. So we've written, you know, we've written the Gilligan's Island musical. We have a Brady Bunch musical that we're doing a reading of in New York in a couple of months. And all of these things were running in parallel. There was a period in the 80s where I was on, on camera on The Young and the Restless, because every time they were doing any music in the show, they'd bring me in to play guitar, and, and it would be an on-camera gig. You know, and I'm raising two kids, and it just worked out fine. You know, all these union gigs. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, then gradually, once the kids got a bit older, and then my friend James Lee Stanley offered me a record deal, uh, to do a solo guitar album. So in 1990, I released Solo Flight, which came out on Beachwood Records, which was his label. And I got some radio airplay on it, and, and people said, keep doing it. So I kept doing it, and I'm now about to go in the studio to record what I think is my 27th album, but I've lost track, <laughs> to be honest. Well, when you record an album, how long does it take you out of curiosity? Um, anywhere between a day and three months. The record, it just depends if I'm like, I'm going into Capitol next week or week after next. And I've got at least a dozen tunes that I want to record. Um, I may get six of them done in the space of an afternoon. I might get more done. I might get three done. I'm not sure yet. We'll see how, how it progresses. But when it's solo guitar, you don't have that kind of get the drum sounds kind of thing. So you can move quickly because it's more performance oriented. Um, not like cutting tracks. Yeah, yeah. When you've got a band, but I and so I've done a few albums that were done at Capitol in a day and a half. But uh, yeah, working at home, I'll work on arrangements and I'll record stuff, and it just depends on what the schedule is. But the the process is is really the pre-production side of it. I mean, I have a, the arrangements that I have right now that I'm about to record. I've been working on on and off for over a year, and part of it is just focusing on certain aspects, uh, whether it's the improvisational side of it, being in Daggad tuning and playing a, a tune like Misty and B-flat in Daggad and really kind of working through the, the permutations of how to, how to solo in that key, in that tuning, and to make it work as a, an integrated and artistic statement. Uh, but like the, the Touchstones album was recorded in the space of about two weeks. And I wasn't even going to do it as an album. I was just, I'm doing a folio of all the music with Hal Leonard and they wanted recordings of the tunes. So I recorded everything. And then it was like listening back. It was, wow, this is like, sounds like a record. And all except for the last two tracks is in historical sequence. It was the easiest album to, to sequence because I just, it all worked in the, the historical order, except for I just wanted to end on, on a particular track i wanted to end a, with a piece called the capital march by william foden which is kind of an americana kind of um Sousa meets ragtime kind of piece yeah. um you know and, and that album kind of really underscores what my a lot of what my influences were over the years in terms of the classical um and the romantic and the the renaissance baroque stuff and w but with a little bit of ragtime kind of thrown in there too. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of, that's 
part of what's informed my own compositional process. Are you always in dad gad tuning? No. Uh, very often I'm in standard tuning. On electric guitar, I'm almost always in standard tuning. Or I just did something uh, that was in dad gad but, uh, on electric, but typically I'd be in standard. And I also use CGDGAD. So it's dad gad but with the bottom two strings down a whole step. Oh, okay. My Pink Panther arrangement is in that tuning. That gives you, you know, that puts you in the kind of baritone guitar. Like the bottom string is a C, it's the bottom C of a cello. Yeah. Now the bottom three strings are the same as a cello. So you've got the fifths at the bottom, but then you've got the dagad, you've got the dagad capabilities on top. Right, right, right. I have an arrangement of Alfie, which is in B flat in that tuning. And it works really well because the, a lot of the bass notes, uh, Burt Bacharach uses a lot of C, G, and D chords in that. Even though it's in B flat, it keeps kind of going in that direction. In fact, at one point, it goes to C minor as a secondary tonic, and it just makes perfect sense. Same thing with, with Pink Panther. It was like, how do I get from an E, walk down from an E to a C and back up again? Well, tuned down to a C yeah. and then everything else. it's like okay I'll leave the top strings in standard tuning but then the the kind of the um the, some of those sax voicings just don't finger well in standard tuning whereas they do very well in dagad so it just kind of was a natural right. flow of that. So even yeah. though that's GAD tuning that's in E minor for example ah uh, yeah yeah so the tuning doesn't necessarily mean it's not like playing in open G tuning and you're in the key of G. And even then, I played in open G and played in the key of D. Uh, you know, it's like using the tuning as, a, as a, a vector, but without being married to it as, as, a, as the tonal center. I get it. Lawrence, tell me about your signature guitar. I had, what happened was when I did my solo flight album, I was playing a, a very um, English style guitar by a maker named John Lavoie. Um, kind of like a Loudon character of it. It's um, a cedar top with an imbuya body. It's really a folk guitar, but it doesn't have a cutaway. And I, I knew that I needed a cutaway because I was doing a lot of tunes. Like I have an arrangement of um, Martha, my dear, that goes you know, way up like 15th, 16th, 17th fret. Um, how so I needed a cutaway and then I, I happened upon a tailor uh, guitar center this was early 90s and I called up Andy Brower and I said um, who was doing my cartridge at the time and I said do you know anybody at Taylor guitars and I got given a name of somebody at Taylor I went down to the factory and they built me a custom guitar with a cutaway small body because I you know I needed the cutaway I needed the smaller body because a dreadnought just doesn't work that well for finger style or maybe a d35 or a, a, an old 30s dreadnought but but a modern dreadnought just doesn't the string spacing is wrong the body's too big and so i start. i was playing taylor's and then i eric schoenberg turned me onto the the orchestra model the om which is essentially a triple o size guitar with a long scale like for long for martin not a short scale, because the triple r is a 24.9 scale. Mm -hmm. The other is a 25.4 scale, 
which is still actually a tenth of an inch less than a, than a Taylor or a, or a Collins. Um, but so I was going to order a Schoenberg because Schoenberg was making guitars with Martin and it didn't work out because they, they'd stopped manufacturing. Um, TJ Thompson, who was doing, working with Eric, sent me over to Bill Collins. So I, I, I had a Collins OM, which was a very, very serviceable guitar, along with the Taylor. It was like kind of the Stratton, the Les Paul kind of scenario where mm. I would travel with both. And then I got, I got to the point where I, was, I noticed that Martin were kind of upping their game. And I got to very friendly with Dick Boak, who was the artist relations guy at Martin. And, and it, at one point I called up and said, you know, I want to order a custom shop guitar. And I want an OM with a cutaway and an Adirondack spruce top. And, you know, the, the list went on. Two and a quarter inch string spacing at the bridge in the 12th fret. And... That turned out to be a great guitar, and they said, can we do that as a signature model? And so that led to the first generation signature model, which was a mahogany um, OM18. And then it, that did so well, they said, can we do it again? And I said, well, can we do Madagascar rosewood? And they said, no, we can't get it. Let's do Brazilian rosewood, which I didn't even kind of dream to ask for. So we did a limited edition of Brazilian. We did it in Indian rosewood. And then... Subsequently to that, they did get Madagascar rosewood. So we did an open edition in Madagascar. We did an edition in Maple, another mahogany edition, a, a short, a very limited edition of 25 in Koa of an OM44. And then subsequently, it, everything was being done through the custom shop. So now it's really like you can order a you can order, but it's a six to nine month wait. I mean, it's, they're not production line guitars at this point. And they're pricey. I mean, the retail price is over 10 grand. Yeah. But you can buy them, I, mean, I think like five, four or something is what they're asking. Um, but that's because it's hide glue, it's thin finish. It has all the, um, the those kind of custom shop things that, it's, it's not quite an authentic because they won't do an authentic finish, which is a slightly different formula from the 30s, but close enough. And, and I have one in mahogany and one in Guatemalan rosewood, both of those with um, European spruce tops. They're high alpine Italian, no, high alpine Swiss spruce cut on the waning moon. It's what they call moon spruce. You get, drier, you get a drier log if you cut it on that. It's part of the lunar cycle. So a lot of companies now are doing torrification where they like suck the moisture out to artificially age the top. Right. Moon spruce is, is nature's way of doing the same thing. So they say it's about 15 years worth of aging. They're very, very responsive guitars. And I've, I've come to enjoy the, um, the European spruces because the, the attack is slightly different. Um, I, can, I liken it to an Adirondack spruce top is kind of like a, a blackface fender mm. and a and a uh, moon spruce top like I have is, is kind of like a flexi Marshall. It's like the kind of compression aspect of it. Whereas most modern guitars are made with Sitka spruce, which really is almost like playing through, um, you know, especially with, with acryl an acrylic glue guitar, it's kind of like playing through a solid state amp. Mm. It doesn't have the same compression. The bottom end doesn't bloom in the same way. Yeah. But then you put that Indian rosewood on a dreadnought, and it's actually a very pleasing sounding guitar. Doesn't mean you can't make a great guitar with Sitka spruce. It's just for the way that I play. Yeah, yeah. Where where this underlying kind of classical in in a broad sense sensibility, looking for 
a, a broad dynamic range in particular and a, and a, a harmonic integrity that suits the kind of complexity of how I write and arrange. Last question, Lawrence. I don't want to keep you too long because I know you're busy. What's the best piece of business advice that either you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? I think, I mean, you know, the, the thing I learned from McCartney is, is to hang on to your own publishing. Because <laughs> that's where the money, the money in the music business is in songwriting and publishing. Yeah. Unless you're playing to large crowds and you have a low overhead. And you know, certainly, I mean, going out doing concert tours and selling merchandise, and there's a business in that. There's no question about it. But but the real money is in the writing and, and publishing. Now, which doesn't mean that you couldn't make an administration deal with a big company, you know, and and have you know, if you have success, it's always good to have people that know how to collect your money. Yeah, no kidding. For you, but 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 in terms of the ultimate control. And now, you know, even to the point nowadays with the streaming market that if you can own your own recorded masters too, then there's more money to be made on that front as well. Sure. You know, and you kind of, you know, it's like they always talk about music publishing as being a penny business. It's just a lot of pennies. Yeah, you right. know, it's like, I mean, one can have a, one can have a small but deep catalog or one can have a wide and fairly shallow catalog and be making the same kind of same kind of income from it uh, you know my daughter Ilse is a songwriter and she's she's with sony atv music and she's been having a lot of hits she's been having a lot of success um so there are you know th that business still works yeah yeah um it's like it's it's not like it's kind of doesn't exist anymore but for an artist the whole landscape changed when you know when streaming came along sure right? but then the counterbalance to that was sound exchange and, and the ability to make money as a performer from, from streaming royalties. You know, before I leave you go, Paul Ill asked me to ask you about the George Harrison story. The George Harrison, okay. So I, I got called to work, uh, do a session with George Harrison. For, he was doing music for the Shanghai Surprise Movement. This was 1986. Hope was pregnant, nine months pregnant. Her due date was about a week later. And I'm all set going in the studio the next day. She goes into labor that night, the night before the session. And had the baby, had Ilse at 7.15 in the morning. So I pretty much go straight from the hospital to the studio. Hope's pissed not because I have to go to the session, but because she didn't get to meet George. Yeah. <laughs> she was in the studio to meet George. Um, so while I'm at the studio, I put her on the phone, put him on the phone with her. And he said, you know, when you're ready, come, come visit. So two couple of days later, Ilse's first outing as a baby, a newborn, was to village recorders in West LA. Um, you know, Hope got to meet George and, at one point, George takes Ilse out of the baby carrier and he starts dancing around with her. And then he touches her on the forehead and says something in Sanskrit. And we said, what did you say? And he said, I was so inspired by this young life that I gave her the gift of music. So she, she was blessed by a beetle. Wow. And it took. 
She co-wrote uh, Miley Cyrus's new album, Mark Ronson's new album. She, um, you look on her Wikipedia page, I mean, it's, there's a list, you know, more than my arm is long of, of, of songwriting credits, including Linkin Park, Boy. Beyonce. Yeah, a lot of stuff. And it keeps going. So, yeah, so hashtag proud dad. <laughs> <laughs> you can find out more about Lawrence at lawrencejuber.com. Lawrence Juber is L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E. J-U-B-E-R, all one word, lawrencejuber.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyowinnercircle.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and now on Spotify. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Oh,